Hello and welcome back to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me as ever in the studio, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And back again this week, Spiked columnist, Luke Gittos. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the almighty bust up over Nicola Sturgeon's gender recognition bill, Jeremy Clarkson versus Meghan Markle, and the resignation of Jacinda Ardern. So this week, the UK government launched the kind of nuclear option, as it's been described, against Scotland's gender recognition reform bill. This was a reform introduced by Nicola Sturgeon at the tail end of last year. Um, Lots of concerns had been raised about women's rights, the effect it's going to have on children, with the way that it would essentially uh, create a system of gender self-identification. Now, that's not strictly the reason why Westminster has blocked it. Can you explain a little bit about this sort of legal background to this, Luke? Yeah, I mean, it's the nuclear option in that it's never been used before. So this is a section of the Scotland Act, which is the act which gave birth to the Scottish Parliament, the framework of devolution from 1998. And one of the sections in that act effectively gives Westminster the power to block any piece of legislation passed by the Scottish Parliament, which would have a detrimental impact on the rest of the UK's legal system. Now, while I think this is unprecedented, um, I think this that the Scottish bill is the precisely the kind of bill this section was designed for. Yeah. Because what the Scottish Parliament is proposing is a very radical overhaul of the way that gender operates in the United Kingdom. And they might say that these changes are limited to Scotland, but of course they're not. Someone could have a gender recognition certificate in Scotland, travel south of the border and use it in the rest of the United Kingdom. So this would represent a seismic change to the way that gender is dealt with. So I think it is a perfectly legitimate use of this section. And I hope when the inevitable legal challenges come from the Scottish government, because I think we can expect um, judicial review at the very least. This may go all the way up to the Supreme Court. We know that the Scottish Parliament is very keen to fight its battles in the Supreme Court um, following uh, recent decisions about the independence referendum. Um, When those battles come, I hope Westminster win, because Mm. this piece of legislation has been passed with almost no consideration as to the wider impact. And the Scottish Parliament, uh, the SNP have very little mandate for this change. We know that Scottish voters, uh, the majority, don't seem to support uh, the measures that are contained in the bill, which are to uh, firstly reduce the age uh, where you can secure a gender recognition certificate from 18 to 16. Secondly, it removes the requirement for any medical evidence to be produced, no requirement for any um, diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um and reduces the time that one has to live in their chosen gender from two years down to three months. Mm. So effectively, as you say, it's a system of self-identification. And that would drive a coach and horses through the legal divisions that we have in this country. And of course, when you're creating laws, you have to be aware that you're creating a permanent change in society. And if that law is open to abuse, then that deserves scrutiny. There's been none of that kind of scrutiny in this in the passage of the Scottish Bill. It's, it seems fairly self-evident that it would be open to abuse. Yeah, I mean, of, that's, of that course. seems obvious. Only the most naive people in the world mm. would think that there will be no consequences from this. Tom, what do you make of that? No, I think that's exactly it. And also there's evidence of it within Scotland even under the, and the rest of the UK under the current arrangements. I, yeah. mean, I think there was a case in Fife, I think a few years ago, of someone who I think was under the age of 18, but had been sort of preying on, on young girls in supermarkets. But because they identified as female, they were, when they were uh, essentially released from young offenders institutions, they were released into women's refuges and things. I mean, or uh, women's halfway houses. Uh, obviously in England, we've seen the things like the Karen White case, quote unquote mm. Karen White case of 
again, kind of convicted sex offenders um, because of how they identify effectively being put into the women's estates and being actually able to prey on women and women actually being sexually assaulted as a consequence of this. And this is with the current UK-wide yeah. arrangement. And obviously what they're talking about here is making it much more broad sweeping, removing any of the kind of safeguards as previously existed in terms of a gender dysphoria diagnosis, in terms of the amount of time that you have to live in your acquired gender, you know, from two years down to just a few months. And of course, the new, the whole new frontier of kind of under 18s as well being brought into this as well, which has its own knock-on effects and impacts. So to suggest that it's just outrageous that it would never, that of course, it's not going to have any impact. You also see this weird conflicting argument, which is that this is really just a bureaucratic tweak. Oh, yeah. It has no impact on sex-based rights. It has no impact on women's spaces, whilst also heralding it as a great civil rights breakthrough, which sanctifies trans people's position as their chosen gender and so on. So the, these arguments never really stack up. And I guess the question going forward is, is this, by picking this fight, mm. um, who's going to, you know, what impact is that going to have on the constitutional debate, on the question of Scottish independence, particularly in the con context of this being such an unpopular measure that the Scottish government are pursuing. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon seems to, yeah, as, as you're alluding to, Tom, have it, want to have it both ways. I mean, she said explicitly, this doesn't give trans people more rights. And yet on other occasions, mm. we'll say it's only, you know, transphobic bigotry that is preventing the, um, you know, this bill from, from going through. Um, you know, thinking about the kind of uh, constitutional question, Luke, doesn't this just feel like another example of Scotland trying to be, or trying to look past itself off as sort of more progressive than the rest of the UK and actually, you know, messing up quite badly, I, putting through a law that's going to, you know, really hurt women's rights. I, th I think that's exactly right. It's an attempt to draw a political line between themselves and the Westminster Tory government. Um, I do think it is the opposite of progressive because mm. it proceeds on the basis that uh, when we talk about women's spaces, that women's spaces are only valuable because they prevent women from experiencing violence. But of course, I mean, I'm not a woman, but I presume that a big part of having a woman's only space is so that women can share a space with people who have the same experiences as them. And of course, uh, while we can recognise trans uh, women as uh, women to the extent that uh, we treat them as women, we also have to recognise that they have different experiences to biological women. And the thing that really disgusts me about this is that uh, women have been sort of told that they're not allowed to prefer women-only spaces anymore. Yeah. It's like you're not allowed to be uncomfortable with the idea of a trans woman being in that space. You just have to come along with the agenda. You have to, um, if, you know, if a woman was in a, for example, a rape crisis center surrounded by other biological women and a trans woman entered, that woman is being told you're not allowed to object to this anymore. And that's the most awful part of this. It's the, and it, it's the same is true of the example of women prisoners. You know, some of the most vulnerable women in our society are basically being told your preferences as to who you share a space with don't matter. Yeah. And not only don't they matter, we're going to make a law irrespective of your feelings. So I hope the UK government hold the line because this is a bulldozer through women's only spaces and therefore the feelings and experiences of women in this country. There was an interesting kind of a quite telling clash in Parliament to that end where the Tory MP Miriam Cates talked about, you know, feeling uncomfortable in um, a woman's bathroom and then Lloyd Russell Moyle, the Labour MP, well-known kind of trans rights activist, essentially um, dismissed her concerns as dog whistles, mm -hmm. you know, as bigoted. 
You know, and that was a really obnoxious attack. I mean, it was really so striking. I think within that, you really saw the way in which um, women are dismissed in this whole discussion. You effectively had a, a cis white male, if you want to use that kind of terminology, <laughs> you know, shouting down a woman talking about her own lived experience. So mm. it just, it really tips on its head a lot of the claims of this broader sort of woke movement make in so many different respects. But I think the phoniness of the line from the SNP, which is this, this affront that this is a full frontal assault, I think was the choice of words from Nicola Sturgeon on Scottish democracy, despite the fact that this is, a, there are such things as reserve powers. There is such a thing as UK wide yeah. um, law that you cannot just inflict upon the rest of the UK a particular law just because you happen to favour it. And I do wonder if this is going to be something that, whether that argument can land or whether or not particularly in the context of Nicola Sturgeon trying to invoke that argument to get the Scottish public behind reforms which are deeply unpopular you know two-thirds of the Scottish public oppose the main provisions of this particular bill will just sort of demonstrate that despite all the kind of Braveheart routine they are as distant from the views and the values of people in Scotland as the parliament in Westminster if not more so so I think it'd be interesting to see how this pans out I think that the the kind of nuts and bolts of this it's anti-democratic argument just don't stack up but at the same time I do wonder whether they'll even be able to land that in Scotland at the moment given how this has just shown up that chasm between the SNP and the people they want to lead out of the United Kingdom as it were Before before we move on I think it'd be wrong not to bring up the um, Green MSP who thinks the Scottish provisions um, don't even go far enough. Uh, Famously, the Scottish um, law wants to reduce the age from 18 to 16, at which you can change sex. She suggested we should explore um, children as young as potentially eight uh, having this right. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, it's terrifying. Introducing any legal change that affects children as young as that um, is obviously um, enormously significant. And as we've seen with the Tavistock, the case you review into the Tavistock Clinic, which showed that children were being allowed to have be subject to very significant medical interventions with almost no proper medical uh, supervision, uh, I think we can put it as highly as that. I don't think that's overstating what happened at the Tavistock. Mm. The idea that you would give that legal sanction, I think, is absolutely terrifying. So reports are suggesting that Amazon Prime and ITV could be about to drop Jeremy Clarkson, everyone's favourite motormouth TV presenter. Um, And this is on the back of a row that began with, a row he's having with Meghan Markle over a column he wrote in December. Um, The column talked about how much he hated Meghan Markle, hates her on a cellular level, wants to see her dragged through the streets, pelted with excrement in the nude. Um, And he's apologised several times, but still people are trying to... um, People, are tr- people want his head on a platter, essentially. Mm-hmm. Tom, what have you made of this? Well, I think it's quite interesting about this case in particular is, first of all, how it does feel like the kind of world has changed around us. You know, Jeremy Clarkson would get into one of these scandals every couple of years, essentially. You yeah. know, there was the one not too long ago where I think on the one show he said that striking workers, he would happily kind of take them outside and shoot them in front of their families and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had to apologise and so on and so forth. We go through this dance every three or four years, it seems like, with Jeremy Clarkson. And yet at this point, if the reports from Variety and elsewhere are to be believed, he's really on the verge of being dropped, um, even at places like Amazon Prime, where his shows are wildly popular. Yeah. And he's obviously an asset. So they're not doing this to kind of discreetly get rid of someone that they was probably on the way out anyway. In that, you kind of see how much the world has changed. Now, that particular column, you know, as you say, he's apologised for it. Um, there are a lot of people who 
you know, the, it was close to the bone even by his standards, yeah. let's just say. But one thing that is missed about all of this is the fact that he was joking. I mean, amidst all the discussion about this being effectively an incitement to violence and incitement to misogyny, it was this kind of botched attempt at the extreme kind of hyperbole, just trying to express how much he hates this individual with this Game of Thrones, apparent Game of Thrones reference and so on. It was a joke that didn't work yeah. and that struck many people as too much, a bit obscene and unpleasant. But at the same time, I think the fact that it was a joke has been lost to many people, not least Harry and Meghan who have responded to Clarkson's second apology and apparently he emailed Harry in particular in person to apologise on Christmas Day of all times um, <laughs> by suggesting, you know, he's got a pattern of behaviour in terms of stirring up hatred and yeah. I think I even said conspiracy theories. I don't know where that, well, that's necessarily a reference to. Yeah, in, hate, misogyny and conspiracy theories was what Team Megan describes. Which are, again, outfit as it's just like this stuff just comes out without the, yeah. regardless of what the situation is. But at the same time, what I think is interesting is, I th reading that apology, the one that he issued this week, it does kind of sound like he means it. Yeah. I might be wrong, maybe I'm being really naive, but he talks about how the accusation of misogyny really stings because he was like, for all the things we used to get in trouble for on Top Gear, which used to happen quite often, you know, we never used to make women can't park jokes, all this kind yeah. of stuff. It seems to have upset him. Even his daughter was upset him and so on. And so what we kind of see here is he's done everything that the cancellors have asked of him. So he's issued not one but two groveling apologies. He's retracted the article in question. He's also promised to do better in his second um, public apology. He talks about how from now on I will be more careful um, even if it blunts my edge, essentially, essentially yeah. is what he says. But it's still not enough um, because I think council culture isn't really about accountability. It's about censorship. It's about punishing people. Mm. It's about taking people down. It's about claiming scalps. And I think in this particular situation, you have someone who, putting the the original offence to one side, as it were, has kind of behaved precisely how the advocates of council culture expect them to behave. Yeah. And yet it's still not good enough. And yeah. I think that's pretty telling. Isn't that, is the lesson from this, Luke, don't apologise to the woke, stand your grounds, stand up for free speech, don't give them an inch? Definitely. I think that is one lesson. I think in, on the column itself, I do think there is this thing amongst the advocates of cancel culture to effectively ignore the context in which things are said. So, mm. for example, this joke, I agree, it was completely poor taste, obscene and wrong, all the rest of it. Um, but it was a, a reference to Game of Thrones and a reference to a specific character within Game of Thrones, a royal figure who has been dragged out into mm. the public and pelted with excrement, yeah. right? And the, the reason he used that metaphor was not because she was a woman who he actually did want to see dragged through the street. It's because she was a figure of great, uh, m you know, royal status that yeah. he wanted to see dragged down. That was what the joke meant. And everyone knew what the joke meant. And I'm not a Clarkson fan. I never have been and I never will be. But I do think there is this willful ignoring of yeah. the way things are told and the way things are presented. And also, I think, you know, radical, and I'm not saying this is, is true of Jeremy Clarkson, but we do have a proud history in this country of taking the piss out of royalty and yeah. out of ministers, government, you know, and being quite rude about them. Yeah, certainly in much more offensive ways than Clarkson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and often going much, much further than Clarkson mm. did. So I do think that if we are to have any hope of a kind of of maintaining that tradition of mockery, satire, and bringing people down a peg, mm. then columns like Clarkson's have to survive. Now we don't have the kind of writers that we used to. Clarkson certainly isn't one of them, and probably is has one eye on the fact that everything he writes is going to be subject to 
people's PR teams and will therefore willingly kind of prostrate himself in front of them in order to keep a commercial contract, which I think is a real shame. We need more people who are willing to say, no, I'm not going to change my words. I I, I meant it. Um, those writers are out there and um, people who tend to get away with quite serious things that they say in their columns, but we need more of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tom, isn't there a bit of a pattern here? You know, when it comes to Meghan Markle, it's as if you're not allowed to insult mm-hmm. her. You think about, you know, P- um, Piers Morgan mm-hmm. getting the sack for calling her um, quite dubious claims on mm-hmm. Oprah into doubt. We had the head of the Society of um, Society of Editors mm-hmm. who was sacked for defending the press treatment of her. No, I mean, she, it feels like Meghan Markle's on like a one-woman mission to prove that cancel culture really does exist because mm. her like body count at this point is incredible yeah. in relation to the number of people. <laughs> it's the way in which Meghan Mania kind of ripped through the British media and claimed so many scouts, Piers Morgan, as you say, who was actually vindicated somewhat in what he was saying. You yeah. know, he, he basically saying he didn't believe a word she said. There's been a lot of claims that she has made that have since been proven to be utter fantasy basically you, uh, the society of editors forced out was a consequence of journalists actually saying no we are we are racist <laughs> we are racist <laughs> how dare you suggest that we're not mr <laughs> president of the society of editors which is very very strange and now clark's the gay someone who you know maybe isn't uncancelable on the kind of jk rowling level but is relatively close mm. um so it really does show the kind of power of the sort of elite hysteria that <laughs> megan mania sort of represented I suppose just quickly on the apologising because I, I agree I would rather he didn't apologise yeah. in many I don't think he's really got much to apologise for beyond making the sort of joke that Jeremy Clarkson always makes mm. um, like Luke not really a huge fan of that kind of public school pub bore shtick but it's a it's a shtick it's mm. not an incitement to violence against yeah. whoever it is that he's tirading about in any particular instance but one thing I thought was interesting if we do take this to be genuine I think it says something about the culture that we now live in which is that even if you do genuinely feel like you've messed up apologizing is now kind of a mugs game yeah not only because you have to accept the wild overreaction to what you're saying that your speech wasn't just something that was in poor taste but it was violence it Mm. was ginning up hatred against someone etc etc um not only just because it feeds the beast, but because it's it's almost just gotten to a situation where even though we're told that council culture is accountability culture, it's about making people see the error of their ways and so on, it's not within anyone's interest to, even if they feel like they have done something wrong, said something they wish they hadn't have said, it's not within their interest at all to say anything yeah. about it, to, to actually own up, to fess up, whatever, because they know that that won't save them. So in a weird sort of way, it also kind of, even though I wish he hadn't apologised, it also shows that it's almost become impossible to apologise, even if you want to yeah. now. And that's also quite a grim consequence of all of this, I guess. Finally, let's move on to talk about the surprise resignation of Jacinda Ardern. Seems to come out of nowhere for a lot of people. Um, Tom, you've been thinking about St. Jacinda. I haven't stopped for many years. No. <laughs> but um, no, I, the response I found was really, really quite striking. So again, as you say, it was a... a uh, surprise to many people and how across the kind of international media set there was all of this fawning mm. so a lot of people saying this is almost a unique kind of final act in politics going on her own terms so on and so forth blithely ignoring the fact that the reason she is stepping down is because they got an election in october and the polls don't look very good yeah that whilst jacinda mania has endured amongst global media elites it hasn't amongst the New Zealand people. Mm. So it seems quite like, you know, a politician beating a hasty retreat because I don't think they're going to be re-elected is not a unique story. But because of the fact that she said, I'm not stepping down because I don't think I win, they just believe that and repeat it. It has been a reminder of just that remarkable status that Ardern has managed to maintain as a kind of 
figurehead of a kind of new, empathetic, mm. kindly politics, um, all, all just as a kind of quite thin representation of like all that is good and holy. But maybe when you press people, they don't really understand. I think what's quite interesting is that it seems to be the kind of triumph of just kind of substance of um, of superficialities over substance when it comes to politics. Because if you actually talk about Ardern's record, yeah. it's quite restrictive on immigration, incidentally. There was a scandal yeah. last year, I think, about a um, autistic 12-year-old not being able to come to the country because she would be too much of a drain on the health service. If people in the UK pursued those policies, they'd yeah. be all fascist and all the rest <laughs> of it. So there's a yeah. kind of... They prefer her as a kind of symbol yeah. rather than what it is that she actually did in office. And I think that was a kind of interesting thing because there's a lot of chatter about how, you know, the problem these days is that there's too many idiots out there who get won over by celebrity and kind of, you know, mm. the glitz and glamour and so on. And yet, even our kind of media elites seem with figures like Ardern to be as likely to just swoon over someone who says all the right things and strikes the right kind of image yeah. as far as they're concerned. Luke, I mean, there's probably two things Ardern is best known for. One is her sort of... Um, response, her empathetic response to the Christchurch uh, massacre. But the other is, of course, the pandemic. And depending on how you view the pandemic, she's either a hero or a villain. Um, so I think, you know, many in our liberal set will see her as kind and empathetic for having obscenely harsh restrictions. Whereas, you know, what would you say about that? Well, I think she became a figurehead for the more totalitarian instincts across the globe during the COVID pandemic. And I think she became a useful figurehead for that particular response um and i think in response to christchurch it's worth remembering yes her response was in some senses humane but she also passed very significant gun controls immediately mm. after and uh, and a lot of uh, new zealanders uh, didn't like that um so i think that the, the primary message as thomas hinted at is that this was a very mixed legacy one which is uh, on the international level um a, a figurehead someone who uh, did all the right things in front of the camera you know holding up the they are us sign in the media aftermath of Christchurch uh, as part of her press conference. Um, but but in terms of substance, you know, the commentary this uh, today has talked about the made a significant housing crisis in New Zealand that her government failed to deal with. She took quite conservative uh, steps in respect to uh, public spending. So there is this very interesting disparity between mm. her international renown and her, her domestic uh, fortunes. Tom, on on the COVID front. Mm. She's part of a kind of, I think of um, Jacinda and I think of Trudeau almost yeah. in the same breath. You know, this kind of restrictive, authoritarian in practice, but liberal in appearance, if that makes sense. No, completely. And it's interesting because as you, as you were saying, Luke, you kind of have these sort of two sides of the coin, which you have the kind of fluffy image that people have of her. And then you also have what it is that she actually represented, which as you say, on a domestic scale is a bit of a mixed bag. But when it comes to these kind of forms of liberal authoritarianism, mm she is a really key figurehead of that. It's kind of kindly authoritarianism, the kind of it's it's good for you really type of, you know, authoritarianism, yeah. which during COVID was incredibly extreme. Obviously, um, the zero COVID policy, the upshot of that was New Zealanders not being, many of them out of the country, not being able to return home, even to attend to dying relatives. Um, when the policy effectively fell apart because of the new and transmissible variants. You then had a kind of rush to vaccinate people. This is often a story with zero COVID countries. Yeah. They've never got enough people vaccinated. It was kind of full sense of security, I guess. And as a consequence of that, you end up with policies ushering in a kind of two-tier society, you know, heavy restrictions for the unvaccinated. That kind of famous empathy and compassion was very much lacking in those situations. And then also even kind of a, a putting the kind of COVID issue to one side, 
um, she also became a kind of very vocal spokesperson for another kind of front in this, and in many respects, the most chilling front in this new kindly authoritarianism of which a Justin Trudeau, even a Joe Biden is also a kind of figurehead of, which is on the level of freedom of speech. She gave that yeah. startling speech to the UN was it, back in September, where she was talking about misinformation and disinformation as the new weapons of war mm. and the way in which the international community, i.e. international leaders, needed to confront this, um, particularly in relation to things like climate change denialism, as she would call it. Um, all but saying we basically need to usher in a kind of regime of censorship, yeah. almost on a almost on a kind of global level. N- stopping short of that, of course, it's not really within her gift to usher in anything like that. But how that is, you know, by the standards of anyone who calls themselves liberal, which is kind of the flock to which she sort of belongs internationally speaking, should raise hackles, and yet it's seen as entirely sensible and necessary. So on the one hand, she's a kind of insubstantial figure, a kind of screen onto which people around the world in the kind of metropolitan elites projected their kind of post-Trump, post-Brexit frustrations. Yeah. Um, just kind of, you know, she just became a kind of uh, a figure in that, a kind of insubstantial figure in that sense. But in terms of what she did stand for, however you want to call it, it was this new kindly authoritarianism, which has basically taken over the entire Western world in one way, shape or form. So it's no surprise that people are kind of mourning her loss. Um, but at the same time, you know that that whole very grim, a liberal liberalism, paternalism, authoritarian, acceptable authoritarianism, what you ever want to call it. You know, it's yeah. not walking out with her, as it were. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.